Hi, it's Allison, and I don't know about you, but somehow I cannot believe the end of 2021 is approaching. Some days I'm sure it's still 2019 or it's 2024, who really knows these days. But regardless, as this confusing and strange year comes to a close, we're going to bring you a series of conversations. Now, normally on Can He Do That, I talk to one expert or one reporter. Well, for the next few weeks, we're bringing you a bunch at once. We'll host a series of chats with some of the best political reporters in the biz around some major themes that reflect on this moment in politics and this moment in the country. And so this week, that conversation will be led by my colleague and friend, the great Ashley Parker, the Post's White House bureau chief. Hello, Ashley. Hey, thanks for inviting me to do this. So I'm handing you the reins this week to talk about the year in Biden, where his accomplishments and his shortcomings stand, and taking a look back at some of the pivotal moments that have really defined his first almost year in in office. That's right. And I am here with two of my colleagues on the White House team, Annie Linsky and Sean Sullivan. Annie, I see you're coming to us from home, sort of under some stairs. How, How are things going over there? Great, great. And I'm actually coming into the office a little bit later today. So that's exciting. Look at you. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And Sean, for those of you who can't see, which I guess is all of you, actually, Sean had a breakfast on Capitol Hill. And so to find a quiet space, he has huddled in a very old school wooden phone booth in the Senate press gallery. And he's sort of jammed in with his mask, with his headphones, with his glasses, Superman style. So thank you, Sean. How, how are things in there? Oh, it's great to be here. And I'm glad that I don't have to keep refilling quarters to keep this call going. <laughs> All right, guys, I will leave this to you. So I, I want to dive in with a theory that I've kind of been obsessed with, and I know we've talked about it on the White House team, but it's basically this idea that President Biden ran on the promise of restoring normalcy to the United States and to the office of the presidency, and that included, obviously, ending the pandemic, getting the economy back on track. But I actually think the first place he really undercut that was the way in which he withdrew from Afghanistan at the end of the summer. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I mean, that was this, I mean, you you came back from vacation, I believe, to write some of those stories. I mean, it was this moment in Biden's presidency so far that you just sort of all of a sudden felt that the kind of expertise that he said that he would bring to bear at the White House was not there at all. He had said and promised one thing. He, he even said that this exit from Afghanistan would not have echoes of Vietnam. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw on, on television. Um, so it was just like this sort of direct contradiction of what he, how he had described the end of the war to be. But we've just also seen it bear out on the Virginia gubernatorial race that I know Sean paid super close attention to. But when you talk to McAuliffe strategists and you talk to Glenn Youngkin strategists, even though Youngkin didn't really talk about Afghanistan, that's when they certainly saw their numbers shift. So I think that it felt that way. It felt very chaotic. And it it did, you know, have that Trump reminders of of just wondering what was going to happen the next day that we, we didn't have for the first part of Biden's term so far. And and Sean, you live in Virginia. You covered that race very closely. You attended some rallies as like part reporter voyeur because they were in your backyard. I mean, what happens when, and again, Afghanistan, as Annie said, didn't specifically come up, but what happens when sort of a narrative takes place and everyone goes, wait a minute, Biden isn't the calm, competent, sort of paternal grandfather we were promised? 
Yeah, it becomes very hard for a Democrat like Terry McAuliffe or any Democrat to justify why voters should be voting Democratic when the leader of the party is struggling to project that normalcy. And Annie, you're right. I remember the Virginia race. There was a debate between the Democrat Terry McAuliffe and, and the Republican Glenn Youngkin. Afghanistan came up briefly. It was not the focal point of the debate, but to me, it was a really telling moment where you had Glenn Youngkin attacking President Biden, attacking his mismanagement of the withdrawal, mentioning the chaos. Then the moderator turns it over to Terry McAuliffe. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what is he going to say here? Is he going to try to find a way to (laughs) spin this or defend this? And he totally sidesteps the question. He doesn't really address at all head on what Biden is doing. He doesn't defend it, doesn't even try to really defend it. And to me, that was a really telling moment. And I think it was really, really jarring to a lot of people because a lot of voters we talked to on the campaign trail last year said that what they hoped they were getting in Joe Biden was somebody who was that adult in the room, somebody who could restore that calm. They felt like under President Trump, they had to check their phones like every 20 minutes. And they were worried that there was some (laughs) new international catastrophe that could erupt at any moment. And they felt like, okay, under Biden, that's not going to happen. Well, I think the withdrawal really cut against that. And so even if people agree with the merits of the withdrawal, as the White House continues to believe, that may not be enough to convince people that Biden did it in a way that was responsible. And that may not be enough to convince people that he's actually delivering what he sold them, which is that he would be that adult in the room. So I think that's why it's just become this hugely problematic thing that to this day, I think, looms over his presidency. And, and, and I, I th- oh, go on, Annie. I, I also I feel like it was the, it was certainly the, the withdrawal and those images of the withdrawal that kind of ca- captured everybody's attention and captured the country's attention and focused it on this questioning the sort of competency argument that Biden had made for himself. But it was also that this the the drumbeat all summer of the president saying over and over and over again that he had confidence that this Afghan government could stand. And then it just collapsed. And it, it began, you began to wonder whether Biden's credibility was in, in doubt too, because he just had so much certitude when he talked about the, the strength of this, of this Afghan government. And he, he didn't leave open the possibility that it could just disappear overnight, which and is And some of happened. that certitude, right, actually came from the fact, as we did some reporting, was that this was actually a decision he'd made over a decade ago, right? This is a decision he had made as vice president sitting just next to pre- then-President Obama in the Situation Room. And now, a decade later, he was able to, to implement it. But he sort of had the confidence of someone who had internalized this for over 10 years. And I, I do want to move on Uh, to sort of the Supreme Court arguments we heard. But I will say it sounds like we're actually all united in this theory. But just to to buttress it a little bit, I do want to add, Annie mentioned how I, and I remember this very vividly because I was on vacation with my family. And then I somehow confusingly found myself sitting in a New England uh, Airbnb writing a story on the Afghanistan withdrawal. But what that did, what that so much reminded me of, of what it was like to cover President Trump. I can tell you the number of times I was covering President Trump. One time I remember very vividly, I was sitting at the airport with my husband who covers, who covered the Trump White House for the Wall Street Journal. We were getting ready to go to a friend's wedding and a road trip through Texas for a week. We're about to board our flight. 
and two of Trump's senior campaign officials get indicted in an early morning FBI raid. And I remember us being like, do we get on the plane? Do we not get on the plane? Like, do we need to be at work? I will say we got on the plane. But I sort of felt like under President Biden, I felt it was very safe to go on a vacation in August, right? And so just the fact of that, again, made me think like this totally undercuts his argument that he is the antithesis of his predecessor. So I also want to talk to what it feels like everyone is is talking about right now. But it's something we knew was common that the Biden administration was going to have to grapple with, and that is the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. And yesterday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in this monumental abortion case and basically signaled that it would uphold the Mississippi law that undermines Roe v. Wade. Sean, have we heard from President Biden or the White House on this yet? We have, uh, and we heard different things from President Biden and from his press secretary, Jen Psaki. The initial reaction we heard from the president as this was unfolding in real time was that he didn't really pay attention. He hadn't really tuned in to the hearing, to these briefings, which I think was somewhat striking to a lot I mean, of Americans. Can, can, that, how much... can that be possible? Like, I feel like average Americans wanted to hear these oral arguments. How could President Biden not be paying attention? Well, his, his press secretary, Jen Psaki, came prepared with an answer to that very question at her briefing. <laughs> she said, look, he's, it's been a very busy day for the president. We Fair. will brief him uh, on these hearings. And, and here's what the president believes and here's what he supports. But I thought it was revealing in a sense because when you look at the way the entire Democratic Party talked about the hearing yesterday, they were very eager to bring it up in a political context. You had Democratic candidates for the Senate. You had Democratic campaign operatives, officials all saying, hey, look, we are going to make this a big focal point in the campaign in the midterms. And we didn't really hear that same message from President Biden. And he's somebody, and Annie, I know you've uh, written some interesting stuff about this. He's not somebody who brings up abortion a lot, talks about it, seems comfortable talking about it. You know, they hold any number of events every week on the economy, on supply chain issues. I can't remember a time where they did an event specifically on the issue of abortion. And so if Democrats are going to try to make this a focal point in the midterm elections, I think a lot of them are going to look to the president to try to help them amplify that message. I was going to say, Ashley, you asked this question in a briefing of Jen Psaki. You well, were, I, I, I was going to say, Annie had kind of become obsessed with the idea that the White House will never actually say the word abortion, right? And there's actually an activist, sort of pro-choice activist tracker of counting how many days, basically asking when will the White House say the word abortion. And so I was in the briefing and Annie was like, you have to ask why they won't use this word. Um and I did. I, I do what Annie says. So I did. I asked. <laughs> uh, reproductive rights activists have noted that President Biden seems reluctant to use the word, the specific word abortion, although he did use it in his statement today, in the statement he put out yesterday. Um, can you explain his seeming reluctance to use that word? And was it a deliberate messaging strategy or choice to use it this week in relation to the Texas law? I have to say, um, as somebody who strongly supports women's rights to choose myself, uh, as somebody who spent time working with groups like Planned Parenthood, amazing groups like that, that I think the most important uh, value people should look at is what the president does in his actions and what he fights for. And I don't think I'm going to have any other 
assessment beyond that. But, you know, in talking to Biden advisors and people in Biden's sort of orbit, they have said that the president kind of views this issue kind of through the lens of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin and voters there. And this has this belief that the voters he is wanting to keep in the fold don't like hearing about this word. They don't like thinking about abortion. And there's Democratic polling to back that up. There is a segment of of kind of swing voters that just is this is not an issue they want to think about one way or the other. Um, so there's some some sort of political reason for that hesitancy on the White House's part. And then, I mean, the the nice thing about this issue coming up is it also kind of leads us very naturally to another question Biden has been grappling with, which is just how much he prioritizes the Supreme Court in general as part of his agenda. And he pledged to create a commission to consider reforms to the Supreme Court, bring more diversity, uh, maybe even expand it as some liberals have pushed him to do. But I've, I personally have never gotten the sense that it, to me it feels like he's going to do a commission and say we have a commission and then change absolutely nothing. I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think this commission and maybe changing the makeup of the court is now a priority or do you think he still kind of considers the commission's recommendations and then we proceed along as previously a pace? He was under so much pressure to to come up with an answer during the campaign to whether or not he would expand the Supreme Court. And I remember Sean and I listening to various local TV interviews. Every time Biden like uttered a word that was recorded, we would sort of search the Internet to try to find a, a recording of it. And, and he has been asked this question over and over again, whether he would expand the Supreme Court as as many on the left wanted him to do. And I think finally, after making a bit of a mistake and saying, well, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not, I'll, I'll tell you after the election, he ended up having to come up with an answer, which was, to your point, Ashley, this kind of like a bit of a wishy-washy answer. And, and what do you think, Sean? I I saw well, you well, nodding very vigorously in that phone booth of yours. Yeah, you know, it, it made me think, Ashley, when you were talking about this at the beginning, there is a long established tradition in Washington in both parties of establishing commissions to deal with issues that politicians don't want to address in the moment. They want to punt on them. They want to kick the can down the road, uh, to use another Washington cliche (laughs) that we often hear. And so I think a lot of Democrats are under the impression that this is yet another example of that. This was a flashpoint in the campaign. A lot of liberal activists felt very, very strongly about it. They continue to feel very, very strongly about it. So what does the president do? Well, if he does nothing, then that anger only rises. If he says, "Okay, you know what, I'm going to simply endorse expanding the Supreme Court. I think you have a lot of Democrats on the other side who say, well, wait a minute, hold on. What are you doing? And then, of course, he also alienates the independents, the moderates, the Republicans that he wants to win. So that doesn't seem like a politically feasible option. And then so the commission starts to make sense. You establish this group. It's unclear to a lot of Americans on the outside what exactly this commission is doing. They will present their conclusion at some point. We'll see what the president says. I don't think that many Democrats expect President Biden to all of a sudden come around to the view that the Supreme Court needs to be expanded. That's still a perspective that's regarded as somewhat controversial, even within the Democratic Party. It would also be not it would be off brand for Biden to endorse something like that. And it reminds me of what Annie was saying earlier about his reluctance and the White House's reluctance to to talk about abortion. That was that was very on brand. That was very sort of, you know, vintage <laughs> Biden. This White House and this president 
They don't like wading into divisive culture war issues, divisive social debates. They prefer, if they could, to stick to economic arguments, things that can appeal across party lines, because that ultimately is, is, in their view, why he was elected, why he rose to power, was as somebody who could appeal to the moderate, to the you know traditional Democrat, and also to some Republicans. So they have long had this aversion to talking about these divisive issues, whether it's immigration, whether it's abortion, and you know whether it's expanding the Supreme Court. And I think the through line through all of this is we continue now, almost a year into his presidency, to see that reluctance play out in almost every. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Everything he says. So let's talk about the economy and, and of course, COVID, because one thing we've all noticed is no matter what issue we're reporting on, when we ask about why do you think your poll numbers are plummeting or why do you think Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate in the midterms, their answer always comes back to if we can get COVID under control, and then that also means the economy under control, everything will turn around politically. But as we're sitting here talking, right, we're all facing the threat of the Omicron variant, what that means, what it means for our travel plans, what it means for the health of the nation, what it means for the economy, for supply chains, for inflation. So, I, I mean, wh- where do we stand on on COVID? And Sean, do you think the president could have put in uh, federal vaccine mandates earlier? And, and if he could have, what, what kind of stopped him? Well, I think there certainly is a lot of second guessing uh, about the way that President Biden has responded to this pandemic. I think it's notable as you reflect uh, on the past year that when you look at sort of the first few months, first four or five months of Biden's administration, his poll numbers were like night and day from where they are now. And a lot of that, if you dug in to the numbers, was due to the fact that the American people seemed to have a lot of trust in him about the way he was handling the pandemic. So he came out, he set a bunch of benchmarks and deadlines. They passed a, a pretty sweeping, you know, $1.9 trillion pandemic relief package in the spring that I think a lot of people looked at and said, okay, you know, this president is doing something. It looks like we're sort of headed to the finish line, maybe. And I remember being at the White House uh, on the 4th of July when he gave this speech and they effectively had this party. It was it was a party and, you know, <laughs> it was a cookout and people were at their tables. And, and he, he gave this speech where he said, we are closer than ever to declaring our independence from the pandemic. Just think back to where this nation was a year ago. Think back to where you were a year ago and think about how far we've come from silent streets, from silent streets to crowded parade routes lined with people 
waving American flags. And of course, as we all know now, that was not the case at all. And I think a few people, including in the science community, probably foresaw the Delta variant emerging and being as significant as it was. But even so, I think it was a moment that caused a lot of people to lose faith in what the White House was saying, because Biden's message was, look, if you stick with me, if you stick with me, do what I say, you'll be barbecuing with your family, you'll be out celebrating. And then all of a sudden it turned around and we saw mask mandates return. And I think there was just a lot of whiplash. And then we saw Biden's numbers on the pandemic collapse, and they haven't really been great ever since. If that was supposed to be the cornerstone of his presidency, uh, the cornerstone of his argument that he was going to restore the country to normal, we're not there. We're not anywhere near there, it seems. And we may not ever get to that point. And so that is a striking development that I think few people probably in that White House saw coming. And speaking of normal, I mean, I've been fascinated by, and Annie, every time this question gets asked, you get very excited on our signal chain. And I think it is a good question. But the White House has been asked in a bunch of different ways, some version of like, is this new normal, right? Like, is is new normal? You always wear a mask on a plane and you always get a COVID test. And they always kind of don't quite answer. But but I'm curious, like, what what do you think, if we're being honest, is the new normal as, as being telegraphed from the administration, even if they won't actually state it outright? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, Joe Biden, President Biden was asked that question exactly earlier this week. And, you know, he was asked, are travel bans, travel restrictions, masks, occasional new variants, this sort of these sort of spikes in fear about what could right. be coming next. Bo- boosters maybe have... every six months, like the flu vaccine. Boosters every six months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is that something we have to get used to? Is that a new normal? And the president said, no, it's not. Well, answer your first question first. Uh, the answer is, I expect this not to be the new normal. I expect the new normal to be everyone ends up getting vaccinated in the booster shot. So we reduce the number of people who aren't protected to such a low degree that we're not seeing. I wonder how long he's going to be able to keep saying that, because literally everybody else says this is the new normal. People are going to they're figuring out what is their risk tolerance and they're adapting their lives to that. And I think Biden does have a good story to tell in terms of like, is this Thanksgiving better? Was this Thanksgiving better than last Thanksgiving? Will this Christmas be better than last Christmas? And that's a comparison to a, a time when there were not vaccines to a time that there are, and a time when you really couldn't safely gather with vaccinated people to a time when you can. Um, and they're trying to remind everybody of that. And it, it does, but but he is keeping his goal line at post-COVID world. And I'm not sure that even his Democratic allies and many of whom we talked to in the past few weeks will will tell us on the record that that this, what we are experiencing now is a new normal. And slowly this pandemic will probably become less potent, will, will cope with it better, medications will get better, but there is in the foreseeable future until the not only vast majority of Americans become vaccinated, but the vast majority of the world gets vaccinated, would, would we have a situation where there wouldn't be a, a large sort of Petri dish for the virus to change? The, the thing I think is really hard for Biden, and, they ha- and they've been having a hard time with this, is that like coupling the good news that they have, I mean, the pandemic is better this year than it was before, the economy, the economic numbers 
we as reporters typically judge a presidency by are very, very good. I mean, for the most part, you have other um, than inflation, right? And other than inflation, well, I was going to say like wages in, are in, up, in gas prices, know. other than things that Americans feel every day, things are doing really well, actually. Yeah, that's true. Inflation is, in many ways, you know, a marker of their own success. I mean, wages have gone up, and that is that does mean that prices can also go up. I mean, there is a argument to be made that as the economy is getting going again, that is the reason for inflation. Now, the Omicron variant does sort of it does raise a question as to whether or not that sort of economic heat will sort of cool off a little bit, which will cool down inflation, but would also raise the sort of fundamental questions about the economy and whether the recovery is going to be as quick as it had been in the past. So it is it is a very like it is a it is a confusing time for these um, for for Biden's top economic advisors. And you can see why they they are have a response that is there is a little bit of confusion about why in this sort of environment where wages are high and, and you know job creation is high, they are getting so dinged on inflation. But it is, to your point, it's exactly why it's because of inflation. So staying with the economy, one uh, final question for you, Sean. I mean, one thing they also say will help the economy other than just merely getting COVID under control is passing his Build Back Better sort of massive social spending agenda. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants to vote on this bill before the Christmas recess. So I'm curious what you're on the Hill right now. What else do you think President Biden can do to get this bill actually passed through the Senate? Well, I think a lot of Democrats are, are nervous about getting this across the finish line. They've seen this thing drag on and on and on for months and months longer than they had hoped. And here we are. And there are serious questions, I think, about what it will actually take to get this legislation across the finish line. The the problem that Biden needs to confront is the same one, or at least a variation of it, that he's had to confront all along, which is that Democrats have a very, very narrow majority, both in the House and the Senate. And it all comes down to a handful of lawmakers. And in the Senate, it comes down to Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema, two moderate Democrats who have at times shown a resistance to doing things the way that a lot of the Democrats in the party prefer to do things. Uh, these are Democrats who have a political incentive to distance themselves from Biden and from the rest of the party orthodoxy, right? Because they come from conservative states. So if you want to get reelected, it's not exactly in your best interest to just be a party line Democrat. So yeah, I mean, Trump, Trump won Manchin state of West Virginia by 40 points. <laughs> right. So it's it's hard to envision what kind of political pressure they could put on Joe Manchin in a state where he's very, very, where Biden is very, very politically weak. Um, you know, we've seen the president this year hold a lot of these meetings, calls, Oval Office, photo op type things. He's somebody who's prided himself on his relationships with members on Capitol Hill, with lawmakers. He's talked about being sort of a creature of the Senate as somebody who served on the Hill for so long. But I think the fact that these negotiations have gone on so long, they've almost fallen apart so many times. And here we are toward the end, and it's still uncertain where we end up. I think it's created some doubt, frankly, in the party about whether today's Senate, today's Democratic Party, today's Congress is one that this president is equipped to deal with, because it's not the Democratic Party of 1990 or 2000. It's not the U.S. Senate of decades past. And so can Biden navigate all of these different rivalries and feuds and disagreements in his party 
which are really, really complicated. So I think at the end here, that's the role that he needs to play. How do I figure out how we can get to the majority vote that we need? Because he knows they are not going to get any help from Republicans. That's what people are looking at Biden now to try to do to get us across the finish line. That's also what's been so fascinating is obviously bipartisanship is broken and there's huge divides between Republicans and Democrats. But actually in both parties, a lot of the debates we see play out uh, in the Democratic Party are between the progressive wing and the moderate wing. And then in in its own way, the same thing is happening in the Republican Party, right, where you have the sort of far right MAGA base and then the more traditional Republicans who are now getting penalized for uh, voting for a bipartisan infrastructure bill. All right. So let's do a speed round look ahead. I have to say, Sean, set up, up set us up nicely because he was talking about Build Back Better. Um, so, Annie, I'm curious whether it passes or fails. What do you think Biden's focus will be when we come back after the holidays in 2022? Um, I mean, that's really hard to say. He's <laughs> done this week. <laughs> His focus has been all over the place. Um, I think his advisors would like him to focus on like whatever key takeaways um, remain intact in this in this piece of legislation. So you know whether that's climate change, more invest- investments in the care economy, particularly in child care and the child tax credit. Assuming those are all you know pieces that remain intact and are things that are worth bragging about when it. When and if it passes. And and of course, voting rights activists are desperate for him to return to voting rights. So, I mean, we just we've sort of devoted this podcast to assessing Biden's past year. But, Sean, I wonder if we're even being fair in the sense that were his promises, his expectations just too high when he took office? You know, was he ever going to be able to return us to normalcy after, for instance, a deadly insurrection on the U.S. Capitol? Yeah, I mean, a lot happened, and you point out the insurrection, Ashley, like even between the time that he was elected and the time he took office, there was a lot of turmoil in the country. The insurrection was a huge moment, a a real dark stain on this country's history at a moment before he even takes office. This is usually a calmer period for president, president's elect, right? They can work on their speeches, sort of work on their transition behind the scenes. We know even that was was very difficult. But the reality is he did campaign on some very, very specific things. And he did campaign on this fundamental, broader promise, which we've all talked about a lot today, which is to restore the country to calm, to bring an adult into the room, to make sure that people don't have to worry about what news might have broken in the time that they took (laughs) their kids to school or decided to make dinner. So it was really that more than any specific thing that I think people expected out of him. And I think if you ask a lot of voters and you ask a lot of Americans, they don't feel like life is more certain. They don't feel like things are better off. They see rising violent crime. They look at inflation. They worry about gas prices. And they see a world that, in their view, is just as uncertain, just as chaotic, just as tumultuous as it was under Trump in many ways. Now, clearly, there are some key differences in their leadership, but I think that's been his political shortfall. And that's why we're seeing him struggle the way he is right now. And and one final question for both of you that is actually kind of informed by, I was at a journalism forum recently in the south of France. It was wonderful. But one thing I was struck by was everyone there, it was a lot of journalists, thought leaders, and everyone wanted to know if President Biden was going to run again for a second term. And when I said like, yes, absolutely, right, barring, you know, his own standard, which is sort of a 
catastrophic health issue or the belief that he couldn't serve. Biden is fully prepared to run. No one believed me. Literally, no one believed me. They acted as if I was performing a bit, right? Like no one had had said something so absurd or so amusing than the idea that Biden was going to run in 2024. Like they even brought in validators. They're like, could Ashley possibly be right? But I'm curious, what do what do you each think and what do we know about his plans to run for a second term? I would, I would say two things. I mean, first of all, my crystal ball is definitely broken, so I, <laughs> I'm not going to predict. Um, I just think there is one thing that we know about human nature, and that is people really do not like to give up power. If you look Truth. at the Senate, the composition of the Senate right now, there are a lot of people who are the very, very old. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it just, people don't, when they have power, and I have never had that kind of power, I never will, it must be just so much fun because nobody... <laughs> ever, ever, ever gives it up. Annie um, so, would definitely <laughs> run for a second term. <laughs> right. So I think just sort of based on that, that rule, if I did have a crystal ball, which I don't have, my guess is he would, he would, and his advisors are saying that. And I also wanted to say one thing really quickly. I almost never disagree with Sean and I don't in, 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 in large swaths with his previous answer, but I will, I would think with Trump, like, I mean, with them, excuse me, with Biden, so many voters that I talked to, they just wanted to get rid of Trump. Like they weren't voting for Biden. Like They didn't know anything about Joe Biden. They didn't want to know anything about Joe Biden. They didn't focus on, they didn't read his Build Back Better platform on his website. Like they just, they they wanted, and this was true in the, in the Democratic primary where I would talk to voters and they wanted, they would ask me, which of these 15 candidates do you think could beat Trump? And I was like, oh, look, yeah, crystal ball, still broken. I mean, I don't know. But but so I don't think, I think when he came into office, it was, this is a period of time where voters are suddenly like, oh, wow, this guy's president now. And, and there's like an assessment of him. And so he has had a very untraditional term, first, you know, year of his term because of that. I think there's a little bit of figuring out, okay, we got rid of that other guy that we didn't like. And now we're trying to figure out what we expected from this guy in the first place. I would say one thing on the Biden re-election prospects. It's clear that he and his inner circle, is they're telling people that he's going to run again. And I think there are two ways that is being received in the party. One is that Democrats believe that he actually intends to run. But two, they all are realistic enough to know that intention doesn't always equal reality. I mean, I intend to try to file a story today an hour before deadline <laughs> so that my editor will have enough time to read it. We can all be calm and maybe get home and have an early dinner. That's my intention. I don't know whether that's actually going to happen. And so I think a lot of Democrats view it that way. They say, look, here's a guy who generally does genuinely seem like he's interested in running again, but he's already the oldest president in U.S. history. We don't know what the state of his health is going to be a year or two, three years down the road. We don't know what his priorities in terms of wanting to spend time with his family is going to be. And we don't know what the overall mood or appetite of the country is going to be for a second term. So I think that's people take at face value. I think Democrats I've talked to take at face value that he intends to run. But many, many of them don't believe it'll actually happen. And, and speaking of both intentions and deadlines, we had intended to re- record this podcast far earlier, but I know we are now up against a very tight deadline. Um, So I just want to thank you both, Annie Linsky, Sean Sullivan, for making the time to join us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, And this was kind of fun, right? We could could do this again, maybe get get together, 
Yeah, I think this phone booth is free next week if uh, <laughs> you guys want to do it again. Yeah, yeah, put in a reservation. I'm Ashley Parker, the White House Bureau Chief. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Can He Do That? We want to know what you guys think of it. Did you like this format? Did you like the style? Send me an email at allison.michaels at washpost.com. Thanks so much for your feedback. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Sharla Freeland with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.